0: Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're going to focus on Dr. George Shaw, one of the great music educators. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino.
1: I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino.
2: And I'm
0: Alex Rossner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey everybody, this is so exciting. Another fresh episode of the music history project and today alex we are expanding our staff of the music history project team by including suzanne del fiorentino welcome
1: happy to be here
0: It's happy, happy, happy all around. So uh, Suzanne has been a volunteer for the um, Resource Center and the NAM Oral History Program for about five years, almost six, I think.
1: Almost six. I'm approaching personally about 700 interviews.
0: Wow, that's amazing. We really appreciate your help. And one of the interviews that you helped us capture over the years is the one we're going to play today, Dr. George Shaw.
2: Yeah, Dr. George Shaw is an educator and a fantastic trumpet player. Dan and Suzanne, you were conducting the interview. He is an amazing guy. Uh, Tell us more about him.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that interview took place on October 20th, 2021, right here in the Nam headquarters building. And I think I can safely say We were really impressed. I mean, I knew him. uh, We met before. But my goodness, to hear his whole story and to feel the passion, not just hear it, but feel how absolutely he is in love with his career and uh, very proud of his accomplishments. The role he's played in helping educators as well as students throughout his career is just amazing. And being a jazz fan, having him name drop people like Dizzy Gillespie throughout the interview was an extra treat.
1: And on the human side, what a wonderful, warm individual. Um, I liked him right away when he walked in with his beret, and then he had this just wonderful smile throughout the interview, and it was just a pleasure to spend time with him.
0: Absolutely. So what do you say we get started with the first segment, Alex?
2: Yes, this first segment is uh, uh, about uh, George growing up with music and uh, all the influences that he had. Not all the influences were positive, Mm. so... Let's listen in.
3: Well, um, I grew up in a home with a father who uh, was a Methodist preacher. So that gives you some idea of what was going on. He was always singing around. He could sing really well and would constantly sing. So could my mom. She was a schoolteacher. Uh, one sister who was also passionate about music. So even before I got into performance and instruments, I heard music. We lived next door to the church, piano playing, Uh, three churches within a block of my house all had different kind of music. So yeah, a lot of music, a lot of music growing up.
0: That's really, really interesting.
3: Yeah.
0: Where was this?
3: That, uh, That was in Ozark, Alabama, I was actually born in a little town called Pinkert, Alabama. You've never heard of that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we moved to Ozark when I was, I'd say six years old. And that was really where my memories start mm. um, in, in, that, in that little town there in Southeast Alabama. Yeah.
0: And what did you notice as far as music's role like in the church, for example, did you take a notice to how it was being used?
3: Yes, and it, it, it was always a part of the environment, what was going on. Um, it was used to create the emotional content, add to the emotional content. So a matter of fact, my dad would be preaching and he'd just start singing in the middle of his sermons. You know, that, that black Methodist Baptist whole thing. He had that really going on. So that's that's one of the first things I heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And when you think back at those times, are there particular songs that still resonate with you?
3: Oh, wow. Well, the 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 hymns. The hymns. And they were they all had a little a little ring to them. And, and I remember in particular that would be these ladies who who had a knack For uh, just starting to sing. Church service would be going on and some lady would just start singing in the back. back. But it was always this very soulful, you know, uh, hymn, you know, relationship to the. I know you've heard a lot of those recordings that, that come from the African tradition, the chanting tradition. And uh, I learned a term later when I started studying music called worrying notes, uh, which is what made the flavor different in some of those settings. The way the notes would move around off pitch, you know. uh, That caught my ear early, you know, the whole humming and just the nuance, Mm. yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. So, did you just start gravitating towards music as far as wanting to play instruments? How, how did that develop?
3: Um, my parents tried to force me to take piano lessons because they wanted me to play in the church, and I wish I had listened to them because, of, nah, they didn't really want to, didn't want to do that. I, I started taking lessons, uh, but but the lady who was the teacher uh, was kind of harsh. <laughs> She was uh, not meaning to, but if you did a few things that she didn't like, she'd hit you on your hand with a ruler or something. And I said, nah, I don't want to do this. So I, I, that didn't work out. But, but I wish I had to stay now, now that I see the value of that skill. Because no matter what instrument you play, that the knowledge of the piano and, and the mechanics of it and how to get around the piano is essential to musicality. I think, and uh, but the first idea of playing an instrument came because, again, related to the church, uh, my dad invited some trumpet players to come and play uh, for a Christmas program. And I remember uh, it was this big church, and they, it was kind of a surprise. He didn't tell anybody that he was doing this, and they were up in this balcony. And I'm sitting there, and I hear this <laughs> and I go, oh, wow, what's that? And there's these three guys <laughs> playing trumpet <laughs> in harmony. First time I'd have heard that. Okay, okay. I like that. I like that sound. Happened to go home that same night, Ed Sullivan show. there's Louis Armstrong. He has Louis Armstrong, I just coincidentally. And Louis was having so much fun. <laughs> He's got this trumpet. <laughs> I just heard this trump. Hey, I want to play trumpet. Now I'm in elementary school. Of course, how how do you get to the trumpet? I decide that I would go. You know that back in uh, Alabama, all of the schools were together: the elementary schools, junior high school, high school, all on the same campus. So I worked my way to the band room and. It's total chaos in there, now, this band director, his name was Mr. Walter Bird. never will forget this guy. I'm tugging on his coat, trying to get his attention, maybe I'm eight years old, trying to tell him I want to play in the band. Of course the elementary kids can't play in the band. He turns around, yells at me and says something, well you, you, you can't play in the band, you'll never be able to play, leave, so I was crushed. So that kind of destroyed that part of, you know. Now learn something about that, you, you, don't, you don't want to discourage little kids, even if they don't know what they're talking about, so uh, kind of funny, but it disappeared for a while. But it so happened that my sister had a boyfriend who played trumpet, and he would come over and he'd have his trumpet with him. Of course I would hang around with them, and to get rid of me he'd say, hey, I'll let you play with my trumpet if you leave us alone. <laughs> and that's kind of like, that's how I, that's the first time I touched a trumpet, was this guy's trumpet. Didn't really know what I was doing, didn't really play, no lessons, nothing. And um, we moved, I'll cut this story short, but we end up going to another town. The next town was Enterprise, Alabama, and my first day at that school. By now I'm in seventh grade, I see this kid walking down the hall and he's got a trumpet case. Oh man, is that a trumpet? He says, yeah, you want to play? I said, yeah. He said, come go with me. So he takes me to the band room, introduces me to the band teacher who happened to be a choir teacher who was kind of filling in as a band director until they could hire a band director. And he said to her. Hey, this new kid, he just moved into this town. He wants to be in the band. He wants to play trumpet, very enthusiastically. She said, okay, give him a trumpet. <laughs> now, you would never do that, but she's a choir teacher, right? Fresh out of college. I hear these kids want to be in the band, so she just gives me a trumpet. Now I got a trumpet. No lessons. Take it home on that very first day uh get home, nobody's home, I walk in the house, stop in the living room, take the trumpet out and start trying to blow it. It must have been horrible, the sound, <laughs> you know. But you, you don't know that when, when you're a kid and, you you know, you're just trying. But that's how I got into it that's and, you know, and got into school band. And like so many people you'll talk to, um, school band was was the start. You know because that was the, the that was the gateway that was the door that that got us going you know that was especially in those little towns and back then the the we didn't have a music store in, in the my little town, but once every two or three months, some salesman from some big store you know 100 miles away in Montgomery, Alabama or somewhere would show up with them car full of instruments, and they'd have band night and you'd go and buy instruments. From so that was how I, the, the music industry, the band and all that was, that was the introduction for me.
0: That's amazing. Uh, wow, what a great beginning. <laughs> Very cool. And what was it like for you, how do you put into words what it was like playing in the band?
3: Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I mean that was, it was It was almost like an escape. because. It, it made you special. <laughs> you, you could do something that the other kids basically, you know, not everybody could get in the band. And if you played an instrument, you you, you stood out. You know, the sports guys, and then there was the band guys. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a good it was a good place to be at the time, um, especially when you're looking for um, things that help. Identify who you are, mm-hmm. and uh, learned a lot during that period of time. And that was an interesting thing was there was also the kids who weren't in the band but played instruments, played guitars and 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 and, and uh, drums sets, and they had little bands. And I happened to live next door to a guy who had a band, and so I got that uh, reference. From him, and that's how I started playing electric bass, because you know you don't know um, you don't you don't know uh, the mechanics of the instrument necessarily, but I started playing electric bass because we're walking home from school. I've got my trumpet, and he he's complaining that his brother, who's the bass player in his band. Had just gotten drafted to go to Vietnam and they don't have a bass player. So this is like 65, you know, some 15, 14, 15 years old. And so he said, You play music? I said, Yeah. He said, Do you want to play bass in our band? Now that's how naive we were. <laughs> I never touched the bass. <laughs> Do you want to play bass in our band? But the the excitement of music had taken over, so I said, yeah, I'll play a bass, but I don't have a bass. And he said, okay, well come to my house, you can use my brother's bass. So you know, with the, ex- the kids, and I'm, kids are that naive, even to this day, if you don't tell them that they can't go down a road and explore music, they will. And that's how I got into other music, was mm-hmm. he didn't ask me if I could play. He asked me if I wanted to play. <laughs> And, and I said, yeah. So, and there, there are other stories like that, that at different points directed my energy, you know, the, the desire to learn music, yeah.
1: So I hope you enjoyed learning about his childhood. I especially loved hearing how he got into the trumpet and how a little kid was just so determined to find his way.
0: Very well said, I totally agree with you. It was one of my favorite episodes, you know, for sure.
2: The next segment that we're going to listen to is going to be George, how he uh, got into his first gig. And it seems like everything, every, his entire life, he fell into situations. But I'm very sure he was seeking those situations out. Absolutely. Yeah, let's listen in to the next part.
0: So what do you consider your first professional gig?
3: Wow. Uh not counting all the, the gigs I did in high school, not counting those, <laughs> but the first time I got paid, it was two bucks. Man, I, and that's when I knew. I want to do this because <laughs> I'd have to rake leaves all week to get two bucks and pick up pecans and do all kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, I got two dollars to play, play this gig, and I'm going, yeah, this is cool. First. Professional gig would have been when I get to college. I go, uh, you know, I, I end up going to college at Alabama State University, Historical Black College in Montgomery, uh, on a scholarship, actually a work study program. And because I could play bass, I got drafted to play in the freshman talent show. I, I didn't even tell them I could play bass. I got outed by. A guy from my hometown. Does anybody play bass? And I'm going. He, he does. He does. So, I don't play bass. Yes, you do. You do now. So, they give me a bass, and and uh, once you know, as a bass player, now, you know, every band needs a bass player. Not every band needs a trumpet player, but but, but those those rhythm and blues bands, so. You could work, even if you weren't very good, there was always a slot for a bass player. So I started working around Montgomery, Alabama, just doing little gigs around town. And from there, um, I got in a band. Okay, this, is, this might be an interesting little note. The, the guys I went to school with, the guys who were my classmates, uh, Walter Orange, who was in a group called the Commodores, uh, Ronald Richie was over at Tuskegee. Uh, they, the the Commodores were just starting out, but they were all local bands together. Walter and I played in a band called Taryn the Fantastics, right? <laughs> but and it was a band that mimicked the uh, Temptations. We had five singers, the whole bit. You thought we were Motown. And uh, so the very first professional outing was David Ruffin and Eddie Kendricks of the Temptations broke away from the temps came to Montgomery, Alabama to do a concert, and the promoter hired our band to open for them because we knew all the Temptations songs. We did that, they saw us and said, hey, we're taking you guys on the road with us. So I go from this kid who's playing bass in these little bands to now we're on the road with David Ruffin and Eddie Kendricks, and uh, we traveled throughout the South, and that whole um, part of, of, Development, but that, it was R&B bands. I started out in R&B bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I was offered an opportunity to, to to go on the road when the Commodores left to go on the road with uh the Jacksons to do that whole thing, and I didn't do that because my mom almost died that if I, if I would quit school, she'd say, "No, you, you can't do that." <laughs> and fortunately, I listened to her, so I I turned that gig down. But but the 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 David Ruff and Eddie Kendricks would have to be the very first time that I can say we played with people who had some notoriety and who were well known. Hmm. Yeah.
0: And what what do you remember about that experience?
3: Oh wow. Uh, it, we we were, we were kids, so we we didn't know what road what the road was, and they just put us in a van and drug us around <laughs> we played but they were playing uh, fairly good venues and 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 uh we ran into a lot of other r&b acts uh, uh, um teddy pendergrass and all those people they were these were not big known acts then i mean they were playing at a place in orlando florida called the inferno lounge right so you know we we got a chance to to rub elbows with the up and coming you know uh r&b guys who were going to end up being the r&b royalty if you will so not knowing that made it even more special when i looked back on it I'm going wow that was pretty cool <laughs> because we had no idea it was just like hey look, we got a gig and Florida. We got a gig in Georgia. Okay, let's
0: go. Boy, you guys, this is already so exciting. We're just getting started. This is a great interview. I'm so glad that you guys are tuning in to our uh, podcast today talking about George Shaw. You know, one of the things he just mentioned was a gig that he did when he was rather young with uh, two members of uh, The Temptations, David Ruffin and of course, Eddie Kendrick's And what's interesting to me about what he said was this is a program Uh, a gig, a tour that took place after both of those guys were originally into Temptations. And it's really funny to me that they got back together and continued to sing and perform. Now, just for clarification, because there's something going around the internet that's been bothering me. So here's my opportunity to get on my soapbox. Um, David Ruffin, uh, who was, by, by the way, born in 1941, passed away in 1991, was the lead singer on My Girl, one of their biggest hits as the Temptations for Motown Records and Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Uh, He was with the group from 1964 to 68. And uh, about the same time, Eddie Kendricks, who was born in 39 and passed away in 72, or rather 92, um, was a lead singer on The Way You Do, The Things You Do, and Just My Imagination. And he was with the band from 60 to 71. I say all this because a lot of people don't realize that the band had two lead singers at the same time and they interchanged who was going to take the lead on that particular tune. They didn't follow each other, which is a misnomer that's out there.
1: Thank you for clarifying that, Dan. Now we can all sleep at night. I think so. <laughs>
2: Onward. <laughs> so the next segment, uh, George talks about moving to Detroit in 1971.
3: When I finished Alabama State, I went. I was offered a job to teach in Baltimore, and I turned it down. Went home for the summer and was just sitting around my mom and dad's house. But I had been given an assignment by my um, composition teacher who told me that if I would take the Beethoven piano sonatas, a felt pen and an empty manuscript book, and copy them verbatim, I would become a better arranger, a better composer. Just, you know, take your time, look how these notes line up on the page, because he said that's how composers used to learn. They would copy great composers' scores, they would be their copy. So he said, go do this. So okay, I go home, no job. And I sit at my mom's living uh, dining room table, and I start copying these scores. Of course, that didn't go over too well. No job. You sit there. When you're not copying scores, you're trying to play the trumpet, right? (laughs) So she comes home one day, hands me a a, a plane ticket and 40 bucks and says, you're moving to Detroit. Your aunt can get you a job. (laughs) So she gives me the ticket, gives me the... uh, uh, 40 bucks I get on a plane move now next thing I know I'm in Detroit now what she didn't know was Motown that's what she didn't know <laughs> she had no clue she sent me right to the center <laughs> of what was going on this is like 1971 and then Motown is just just about to get into the transition where they're just they just for to get to la kind of thing I get to Detroit. My uncle, who was a nightlife guy, party guy, my first night there takes me to a club. Said, "Get your horn." Takes me to a club. I sit in at the club. I get a gig my first night in Detroit, playing with a band called the Funky Situation. <laughs> and that was a tenor player in that band. I love this guy, Hank Powell. Now, you, a lot of these guys, you, you, they were just local guys, but they were like. Legends in Detroit, Hank Powell, uh, Felton Jones, who was a trumpet player, uh, uh, whew, Marcus Belgraves. Uh, these guys were killing it. I mean, they were playing all over, and I was in the band with with uh, Hank, and he kind of took me to another level of understanding. Now I'm getting a little bit more into improvisation and a lot of that stuff. You know, even though it was an R&B band. Um, but my, in answer to your question, my study at Wayne, uh, in order to pay for the for schooling, they offered uh, scholarships to train people to teach in the inner city, but they needed string teachers. So if you would take a string uh, assistantship, they'd pay your tuition, but you had to commit to teaching in the inner city for a couple of years. Okay. I play bass, this is like this, well, just turn it like that, right? (laughs) Everybody knows that. (laughs) Well, not actually. So I I somehow passed the audition, um, started teaching in the inner city schools, and going to Wayne Mm. to uh, take string pedagogy and also got a job teaching in the Detroit public schools while going to Wayne, while playing in that band at night. So I'm doing, you know, but burning the camel at all ends, but that was, a, that was another good development period. So when we get out of that, the next stop was Oklahoma where I, I did the doctorate.
2: George dropped a lot of names in this segment, such as Hank Powell, Felton Jones, Marcus Belgrade. Do you have anything to say about those guys? I mean,
0: amazing. I mean, those guys were really at the heart of what became... Uh, Concepts like the Funk Brothers The great musicians behind all the hits at Motown um, And playing in clubs and creating their own sort of sub-band Or maybe even house band Was absolutely amazing Because the next day they would all break up And be in different bands or different studios So the fact that he, George, could be at those moments Where these musicians that rarely got together Formed something very special I think was very influential on him
2: And what all got him there is his incredible talent. He is an amazing trumpet player and uh, he wouldn't have gotten close to any of them, to any of these musicians if he wasn't so good.
0: That's a very good point, Alex, because he's so self-effacing. Most of the time when he talks about his playing, like in the story we're going to hear later about Marvin Gaye, he's the first one to say, well, you know, I didn't really have my chops. I wasn't really, you know, on the ball or whatever. It's like, you know what? He's still performing at a very, very high level to be even in this situation to begin with.
2: And at the same time, he was always gyrating to education. The next segment introduces us to the educators who encouraged him.
0: Alex, that's such an important part of what we're all gathering here in the oral history program at NAM. is those influences, you know, those early band directors or music teachers that really spark something very special in a person. And not only did he have that, which we're about to hear, but listen carefully to his words because many of those statements of things he learned are exactly what he passed along to his students.
1: So let's all listen.
0: What was your um, thoughts about teaching? Did you take to that right away?
1: Yes,
3: I did. Because having come from uh, a background where I I had good teachers, I I had teachers who, who really cared, not just my music teachers, but my, my teachers in my school, my, my math teacher, my you know science teacher, these were, were people who would check up on you. They would call your parents. They would do all of the stuff that kept you on track. And that rung with me. That said something. The, the teacher is important. Because that's one of the first points of influence on a young mind, and they've got you in their uh, environment uh, and can encourage or discourage so I, I I enjoyed you know I taught I've taught at all levels in, in elementary I enjoyed teaching elementary junior high and i I taught in the inner city you know uh, I tried high school in Detroit for a while but I couldn't Really do that. They they had a special pay category for the high school teaching in Detroit at the time that they called combat pay, you know, because <laughs> there was some rough schools in the '70s, man. So yeah, I, I think my first week there, the teacher got thrown out of a window or something. So I said, now nah, I think I'll go back to elementary. <laughs> I think I could handle these kids. <laughs> so, but I but I enjoyed it. You know, I say that lightly, but. It, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of concern. I developed a lot of concern for teaching and the passion that comes with it, which is why I stayed in the teaching profession. For so well, is that
0: part of your drive for continuing education?
3: Absolutely, and that came because um, my early my first band director, Bill Cooper, who's now the mayor of Enterprise, Alabama said to me early on, hey, if you really, really want to do well, you want to stay in school as long as you can. And that's all I re- remember, stay in school as long as you can. Get as much education as you can. You, you'll do a lot uh, better if you do that. By the time I get to my undergraduate, Dr. Otis D. Simmons, who was the head of the music department at the time at Alabama State, one day just walked up to me and said, You need to get a PhD. I didn't even know what a PhD was. (laughs) You need to get a PhD. Well, why? He says, Don't worry, just do it. (laughs) That kind of thing. Figure out what it is and do it. But I had people like that who, you know, took my ignorance and my thirst and hunger for uh, study and channeled it.
1: So besides his passion for music, George was always trying to further his education and his knowledge. Mm -hmm. He had a um, very interesting approach to his PhD project, which it's just amazing it worked.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh, absolutely. This is actually one of the most compelling parts of this interview to me is how he got his PhD. So let's let George tell the story
3: every town that I moved to, I would always enroll in some college classes. You know, when I went to Detroit, even though I was there to work, well, I may as well go to Wayne State. I'm here, so there's Wayne State. Let's go to Wayne State and and just get a master's while you're doing it. You know, and and in terms of the, the PhD, during that time, during that period, there was a major push to integrate the school system, the college school system, through affirmative action and all of the things that were going on with that. So, that had a, I'm of that generation. So, if you had good grades, and I had very good grades, that I kept my grades up. You know, I, I had a four point average. So, I knew that was important. You know, that had been instilled. Get good grades. If you're going to take the class, you may as well get an A. You know, figure out how to get it. do the study, and and do the best you can. So I had good grades, so I could get into the top schools. And uh, I applied to schools all over, narrowed it down to five, and one of them was University of Oklahoma. So I went into the University of Oklahoma doctoral program. And uh, that was a very, very good decision. That was a very good, life changing. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's where I met my wife. Not uh-huh. at the University of Oklahoma. She was at Oklahoma State University. And I was at the University of Oklahoma.
0: So, what was your thesis and how did you come up with that?
3: My thesis was centered around the parameters that shape the learning process for improvising musicians, in particular jazz musicians, okay? So and I stumbled into that. It wasn't something that I didn't have this, I sit down and figure out this grand scheme. Um, I'm at the University of Oklahoma. I get through all of the coursework I pass my general exams, it's time to do the dissertation, I have no topic. I, I have, my committee is sitting there going, okay, you got to your, do your proposal for your, this is 1976, I'm playing bass in a group called the University of Oklahoma Trombone Choir. You know, like 50 trombone players in the rhythm section. All right, So we got invited to go to Washington, I'll tell you the short part of the story. We got invited to go to Washington and uh, play at the White House, the bicentennial thing. On the way there I'm sitting next to a nice gentleman. He starts up a conversation, he's one of the chaperones. What do you do, young man? Oh, you're in the doctoral program. Yes, I'm down to the... what are you going to do for a dissertation? I didn't have it. so I didn't want to sound uneducated <laughs> so I said well if, if I could you know I would just travel around and I would I would talk to people and try to see if there were common elements concerning their life, their education, how they learned and the things that um, they got into that made them good improvisers, and I would try to see if it could be taught. That's a wonderful idea, young man. When you get back, he handed me his card and said, when you get back to the university, come and see me. I get home, didn't think anything about it. Card is in my pocket. My wife is going through my bags. She finds the card. She said, where'd you get this card? Oh, from some old guy on the plane. she's working at the university in an office and the person on the card was the guy who signed her check. He was like head of finance (laughs) or something for the university. She said, this is J.R. Mars. Do you know who this is? I said, nah, just some guy I talked to on the plane. Well, what did he talk about? I told her. Well, he told me to bring him, write down the proposal or something. She said, okay, well, we're going to do it. So thanks to her and so many other things in my life, she helps me (laughs) We put this proposal together. I take it to his office, walk in and and present it to him. And it was like, I need some tape recorders. I need some plane tickets. I need some money. And I want to travel and I want to go meet people. And almost with tears in his eyes, he started telling me stories about Tommy Dorsey and how he played trombone. And that's why he was with the choir. And he said, you know, I'm going to help you. He picks up his phone, calls the Foundation office and says I got a young man I'm gonna send him over that XYZ three five zero nine fund we're gonna use that and da, 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 da. I go in there's another lady like I can't help but mention their names Marge Bradley who whew, she was unbelievable she said hey whatever you told him it worked because he said do what you need and I spent the next year and a half I could go anywhere I wanted to go I laughed now because. You gotta be careful what you ask for. You really gotta be careful. It might show up. And so here I am now. Here I am now. They give me this money and this opportunity. One problem I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody. That, so, but I knew this one guy who was in school with me who was older than I was. Who was a fantastic piano player? His name was Bob Mitchell. So I go to Mitch. I said, hey, Mitch, hey man, I got I got this buddy in But I I what am I gonna do? I don't I don't know anybody to interview. He said, wait a minute. We're gonna start at the University of Indiana. That's where Dave Baker is. He said, Dave Baker, he said, you, 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 you gotta meet this. My wife went to school with Baker. So now he calls Baker. You you I know you from Dave Baker, the educator, yes. right? So that was my first interview with Dave wow. Baker. So he he hooks me up with Baker. Baker said, "Yeah, c- come up to to university. You can you can shadow me for two weeks. I'll put you in one of the dorms, and you can just hang out and follow me to my classes. And yeah, I'll give you an interview." So I'm hanging out with Baker. I'm there for a while, and, and Baker says, "Hey man, you need to talk to Jamie Abelsol. That's who you need to talk to." So now I go from Dave because he Abersall had been a student of Baker. So now. He calls up Jamie. Jamie, I'm going to send this kid over. He he needs to talk to you. Okay, send him down. So I go down to New Albany, Indiana. Now I'm hanging out with Jamie Aversol. Jamie says, because it's like a snowball now, right? I go from I don't know anybody to like I'm with Jazz Education Royalty. So now Jamie says, if you really want some interviews, you should come to the Wichita Jazz Festival. I'm going to be over there. I'm doing a clinic. He did those jazz camps. I'm doing a jazz camp, and it's the same week of the festival. If you show up, there'll be all kind of jazz musicians around. Maybe you can get some interviews. Okay. Go back to the Oklahoma. Wichita Festival comes up. I go to the Wichita Jazz Festival. No ticket, no nothing. Can't get it in. I don't know anybody. I'm standing out front of the entrance to the venue. A taxi pulls up. Now, this, this is how I know stuff just happens. Taxi pulls up. Joe Henderson gets out of the taxi. Now, I knew Joe from his album covers. I knew what he looked like. So I'm going, man, that's Joe Henderson. He walks straight over to me. <laughs> he says, hey, man, you got $5? I said, yeah. He said, give it to that taxi driver and grab my horn and come go with me. I hand the cab driver five dollars. I grabbed Joe's horn. Now I'm backstage. I went from I don't know anybody, I don't have a ticket, <laughs> to Chick Corea passes by and Milt Hintons <laughs> over there. And I mean they're just all there. I'm going, wow. So now Joe says, Well, where are you staying? I said, I, I don't I, I got a car, but I don't have a room yet. He said, Okay, well you're gonna stay with me. So I ended up crashing in Joe Henderson's room for that whole week. Hmm. Now Joe is the one who turned me on the milk. Joe says, Hey, uh, you got to meet the judge because the judge, judge owns New York, so you got to meet the judge, right? So he said, Now they're playing, because Joe had a concert in one room, and, and he said, Well, Judge and, and, and uh, Zoot Sims and all that, the, the, the older cats at the time, they're playing next door. Uh, Hank Jones, they're all in there. So you want to go to that concert. I go to the concert, I hang out, concert's over. Somebody announces Chick career starts in five minutes, so the room clears to go to Chick's concert. I end up in this room with just me and Milt. Milt's packing up his bass. I walk up to him and I said, excuse me, sir, uh, do you need help with, with your amp? And he said, where are you from, man? Nobody, <laughs> kids don't have that kind of manners, where you from? So we started a conversation. And I told him what I was trying to do. He said, yeah, he said, you need to come to New York because that's really, that's the hang. Yeah. I, matter of fact, call me and you can stay at my house, you can stay at my house when, when you come to New York. So now I go, I don't know anybody until I go home and tell Diane I'm going to New York staying with Hill. <laughs> 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 so I went, I, you know, I'm still excited about all of that because it just unfolded, you know. Uh, the opportunity with the funds to be in the right place, starting with Dave Baker and, and the snowball that Jamie directed me, Joe Henderson, the, the whole thing. So Milk now, I get to New York. My 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 first day with him, he calls Count Basie and says, "Hey, Basie, come down then, and, and let, you know I got a kid here." So now I'm sitting there with Milk, and Basie, and they're telling Ben Webster story. I mean, it's like, come on, man, how do you go from that? To this. Then he, he gives me Lionel Hampton's phone number. He said, Call him and tell him you want to interview. So I called up Hampton, Lionel Hampton and I'm trying to talk to him. He said, Man, where'd you get this number? I said, I, 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 <laughs> I, I got it from Milt. He said, Where's Judge? Put Judge on the phone. So I put Milt on the phone. Oh, come, oh Hampton, help him out. He's, he's the kid. He's doing good in school. So they just kind of adopted me. So then the next, now here's, you know, Sweets Edison, Snooky Young. I mean, so I got to Clark Terry. Clark took me to Carnegie Hall, you know. I go to a concert. Here's Ella Fitzgerald, Dizzy, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's how it happened. So I had no dissertation, no topic, no nothing. <laughs> I ended up doing a dissertation that changed my life. <laughs> I wish it was, I wish I could have had a more. Um, it, it was more, you know, refined. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. I had no plan.
1: So I hope you really appreciated hearing how George got his Ph.D. Very, very creative. Mm. Uh, the people he interviewed, the names he mentions.
2: So through his Ph.D. interviews, he got totally linked in with the grades of jazz. Mm-hmm. And... uh At one point, he was invited to go to Los Angeles, and that planted another seed for him to move to the West Coast, and with his PhD, he made this happen very quickly and very effectively.
1: George initially got invited to L.A. because he was such a prolific trumpet player, Mm -hmm. but using his education, he wanted to teach. He wanted to be a professor, and he started looking for jobs.
0: So let's get back to it. Here is more of our great interview from the NAM Oral History
3: Program of Dr. George Shaw. Some good people helped me. Some good people who became my friends, which segues to the next thing. So I get in that whole process. I meet Bobby Bryant. Bobby Bryant, the great trumpet lead trumpet player over at NBC, came to Oklahoma to do a clinic. I got a sign to drive him around. Cat Anderson, same thing when Cat came to town. I was their chauffeur. So Bobby says to me, you-, you play pretty good. If you ever come to L.A., call me. Okay, so I came to L.A., <clears throat> and I called him. <laughs> and he took me around and so forth and so on, but I wouldn't have come to L.A. if I had not met him, so I just mailed. A letter to every college in Southern California because I knew I wanted to go to LA, and I would take a job anywhere if, if it had. I'd be I wouldn't be living in Long Beach I, if I'd gotten hired in Pomona. I'd be living in Pomona because I didn't know anything about Southern California. I, I would land anywhere somebody would hire me, and uh, I got a good positive letter from Cal State Long Beach, and uh, another one from later from Cal from San Bernardino, but. Um, Gerald Daniels, the music building is named after him at Cal State. Nice man who wrote me two sentences that said, you have a very impressive resume. Uh, The dissertation sounds exciting. If you come to LA, talk to me. Called up my college trumpet teacher and said, man, I need to get to LA. He said, okay, I'll go with you. So we drove from Norman, Oklahoma to LA. Got a room at the Holiday Inn. I called up Gerald Daniels and said, I'm here. (laughs) So he said, oh man, that was quick. Come talk to me. So I went out to Cal State the next day, talked to him, and my timing was right because John Prince, I don't know if you remember John Prince. John Prince was the head of the jazz program that did a wonderful job of it at Cal State. John had just gotten a gig um, arranging for The Tonight Show, and he wanted to take a sabbatical. So to, in order to take the sabbatical, you know, I walk in, Joe Daniel said, you know, can you teach theory? Yep. Can you teach music appreciation? Yeah. Okay. Didn't even check me out. He just said, yeah, okay, I'll give you a gig for one semester cause, until John gets off sabbatical. Hmm. So now, hey, I got a job at Cal State Long Beach. But on the way out the door, he says, wait a minute, let me call down the street. There's a community college, Long Beach City College. I think they need somebody, too. So he picks up the phone, calls a lady named Priscilla Remetta, another pivotal lady in my life. Went and interviewed with her, had my dissertation, which was two volumes, 500 pages each of all these interviews. She kind of flipped through it and said, can I borrow these? Yeah. So she took them to her husband, who was a clarinetist, Daniel Remetta, and Dan looked at it and said, hire this guy. So she hired me, and now i got two jobs. so I went from no job to two jobs. So then it ended up that City College just was a better fit. These kids won my heart because you know they 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 needed stuff and I mean, you know, if you can if you can afford to go to the bigger schools you do, but these these were kids struggling trying to get an education. And I had the 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 common sense I think at the time to analyze the situation, look at the students. I had just gone through meeting all these really great, famous musicians, and I got the idea, well, wait a minute, if I can get these musicians to come play with these kids, they'll get it quicker. They'll really get it than just listening to me. So. I called Bobby Bryant, I called Bill Watrous, I called Tom Scott, I called David Sanborn, they all came and did concerts with these kids. They did concerts and and the foundation started backing them, the cable TV people started taping them and so there was this little series, We, we got a buzz going, we got a buzz going. I called Diz, Diz came out, Clark Terry came out, Milk came out, Milk had Cab Calloway come out. So all of a sudden I went from, who is this guy to, how do you know these people? <laughs> and so so it's, I guess it's just a matter of circumstance. that the, the, the sequence made it work. So by the time I got to Long Beach City College, they made that work, I didn't. You know, I just happened to be there, and then okay. So now look who's in that band: Wayne Bergeron, Wayne Bergeron, Wayne Bergeron. Who you know who Wayne Bergeron, Wayne Bergeron was my lead trumpet player. That Stan Smith, who did the the Bernie Mac show, uh, Rex Silas, who did all that Janet Jackson. These were the kids that were they were the kids, and, and they wanted to play. They wanted to play. And they would bring other musicians. They would go tell all their friends, hey, man, if you go down to Long Beach City, you'll get to play with Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> and I think Long Hampton's coming next week. <laughs> so, oh, man, I was having so much fun. I was having so much fun. It didn't even seem like a, it. Was, it wasn't really a job. It was, it was just a, a wonderful experience. You know, wonderful experience. And we all learned a lot. That transitioned into, things changed, and we had to transition that program into a computer-based, recording-based, songwriting-based. Then all the rap guys started coming in from Compton and Long Beach. That's when the Long Beach rap scene kind of took off. Those guys went through Long Beach City College, Warren G and you know the, the, the Snoop Doggs. All those people were right there in Long Beach, and the people associated with them. All came through that program. A lot of them didn't graduate. <laughs> they didn't, you know. They they would come and get what they needed, and then they'd go off to do their thing. And, and and that was that was my goal, really. What? How can I help these kids get the tools that will allow them to function as professionals in the genre that they choose? Whether I like. the music that they're doing or not. They need the tools. They need every opportunity to do what they need to do.
1: So it was really impressive to hear George's um, creativity in being a professor. Here he's teaching at Long Beach City College, and to enhance his students' experiences, he started inviting musicians to come in and play with his students, and amazingly, they accepted. Mm -hmm. His students were fortunate enough to play with the likes of Dizzy Gillespie, Clark Terry, Milt Hinton, let's not forget, Cab Calloway. Oh my
0: gosh. Can you imagine that as a young student in college, at the city college level, to get to play in the band with these guys? I mean, that's incredible. What a great idea George had.
1: Amazing. I don't know how he swung it, but they came in, they played with the students, and then of course word gets around, and people hear about this, Mm -hmm. and that just attracted more people to his classes at community college.
0: That's amazing. Absolutely.
2: George had great success with his program. And he expanded further over the years and included technology, new instruments, music uh, editing software. And uh, he had a great partner in this.
0: Mm, He sure did. It was a local retailer. Is that who you're referring to? Yes, I do. (laughs) Ron Whitaker of Whitaker Music there in Long Beach. had this great idea to collaborate with George, and George had the great idea of going to him and saying, hey, look, if you could provide some demonstrations for my students, we could enhance their educational experience, and at the same time, you might have a future uh, customer or two. And so this set next segment is really special to us here at the music history project because it tells the story from both angles. It turns out one month after our interview with George, we were able to interview Ron Whitaker. So together you're going to hear the story of how they collaborated. So here is Dr. George Shaw and Ron Whitaker.
3: Music is music and everybody has to find their place. Especially if you're going to try to be in music for a while, and that's, that's one of the functions of, of, of education. That's why NAM has done such a, a, you know, just a wonderful job of, of keeping it in, in front of everybody. You know, I remember going to my first NAM show that uh, was a, a music store in long Beach. Ron Whitaker, Whitaker music, Whitaker music, Ron Ron. I didn't even know what NAM was. And Ron called me up. He said, Hey, I'm going to get you a pass to go to the NAM show. You need to go to the NAM show. This was like 80s. And because and I was buying a lot of stuff from him for the school. And he said, Why don't you go and look around? And if there's something you you see that you like, then you come back and, and we'll, we'll get it, you know. But he'd send me to the show, the window shop, and then buy the stuff from him. Right? So that's how I started going to NAM. And that was before. You know, going in the uh, in the capacity of working for one of the manufacturers. You know, wow. Ron Whitaker introduced me.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Very cool.
3: Well, George
4: and I had a very unique situation, and uh, uh, I love the guy to death. Uh, He's a great trumpet player. He's a, a great promoter. He's a great motivator. And he had was the department head for the commercial music department at our local uh, community college, hmm. and so uh, there, his program grew, and it grew with us and through us. And we we were it was a, a symbiotic relationship that we had, you know.
3: I went to Ron. I said, Ron, we the school can't afford this equipment. Your store is closed at night. Why don't we just teach in your store? And he thought about it for a minute. He said, Okay, that'll work. So for years I taught a class on technology, had all of the technology available to me and the school didn't own any of it. <laughs> because Rod had all of the sense, he had all of the, the computer ride stuff and He would hire a guy to open the store for us at night. we set up chairs right there in the middle of the store. We'd bring in industry reps to talk about the gear. So I didn't have to know the gear. I just had to know who to call it, Roland, to show up to talk about the gear. So that was a wonderful thing.
4: We started with uh, effects pedals and uh, uh, other products of that nature. Uh, anything that had to do with commercial music, the software, songwriting materials, all that kind of gear, we bring them to the store. We were the only company in the Long Beach Community College catalog of classes that was uh, put in there as an extension campus because we were an extension campus for Long Beach Community College by having these uh, young people sign up to find out what's new, how it can apply to what they want to do. And we had representatives from each manufacturer come in and give a demo. And, that, uh, and, and it was open to the public as well, and they got college credit for it. They got 3 units college credit to, to, to find out about all these toys, you know? So, and it was wonderful. We It was a standing room only every, every Wednesday night. Uh, and again, the public was invited as well as, of course, it was mandatory for those that signed up in the class. But it was a great experience. The kids learned a lot. And uh, we generated some sales from it, of course, as well. <laughs> you know, have to be a little bit altruistic from time to time, you know?
3: <laughs> And I, I think the resources, uh, teachers who don't take advantage of resources that are just sitting right there in front of them, sometimes don't because they don't think they can. But the, he wanted to help. And there are people out there who want to help. You know, cause he, We didn't pay him anything to do that. And I'm sure some of the kids probably bought a guitar or something out of the store at some point. And I'm sure he knew that too. But it was a win, 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 win situation, and we did that for years. And I still call Ron periodically just to thank him, you know. That's awesome. And it, it, the common element I think in, in any, any of the things that I've shared with you, the people who helped me are more important than anything else, but, because you can't, you can't do stuff by yourself.
4: So George and I <laughs> still talk on the phone today. You know, he's just a wonderful guy.
0: Very interesting. Well, George wanted me to make sure I asked you about a, the so-called Dizzy Gillespie story.
4: Well, Dizzy Gillespie, that's a whole other thing. My dad, he, he, was, a, he was a jazzer. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, George Shaw in, invited uh, Dizzy Gillespie to come to Long Beach Community College to perform a concert and so uh, of course Dizzy said yes and uh, they were they were pretty close people friends and so they uh, in in that process for some reason George couldn't pick up Dizzy at the hotel for the night of the gig so, He asked if my dad and I could go pick him up at the hotel. Well, my dad, well, I do, but my dad just really went into orbit on that one. (laughs) So we went to the hotel room to pick him up. And before we could knock on the door, my dad says, listen. And we could hear Dizzy playing Schlossberg, daily drills and technical exercises for trumpet. He says, I'm, that is incredible, and you could just hear it right through the room. So anyway, we knocked on the door, and there is Dizzy sitting on his bed, just playing, playing those, those, all those exercises and drills, and my dad was just flipping you know. So anyway, we we took Dizzy, picked up George, and we went to dinner, and had, and then had a real nice dinner, had a nice conversation, with George. Our, our, George and Dizzy both and all we we just had a good conversation. It was just a nice evening. So we took him to the to the uh, concert The next day Dizzy wanted to come back to the store and see our store because uh, he he wanted to see What's going on? So we, we brought him to the store and he spent all day with Chap Cooper my manager who is a, a knowledgeable in all the MIDI stuff, because he got entranced with all, of, all this recording gear and stuff and seeing how he could incorporate that into his trumpet playing. Mm. And so, anyway, we spent all day there, and my daughter was there. Bay got ahead. She got his autographs and all that kind of stuff, you know. But, but Dizzy was very gracious, and, uh, of course, the concert that night went well. It was a sold-out crowd. And so everything went well. And then as as it was time to leave and George was going to fly him, or take him to the airport for his next engagement and everything, my dad turned to me and he said, in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd be able to spend a day and a time with Dizzy Gillespie. It's a dream come true.
1: So I hope one thing you're noticing about George is he was always expanding his knowledge. He was never comfortable. He was always pushing new opportunities, new growth, new knowledge, and,
0: and new experiences for his students. I mean, you're absolutely right, Suzanne. It's just amazing to me that there's so many common traits of those that we have interviewed in the oral history program, one of which is this drive that just keeps going. Nobody's resting on their laurels at all. They're just pushing, pushing, pushing.
1: Dan, that's exactly what I was thinking. There was no resting on his laurels.
2: And he was the big connector. He connected people. He connected industry and education and music.
0: Absolutely. So as we think about that, speaking of the music products industry, uh, he did that as well, didn't he? He incorporated some of the people that he learned from Whitaker's music and some of the people doing demonstrations to come in and be even more of a collaborator within the structure of his uh, educational program.
2: Yes, he basically multiplied his idea that he had with Ron Whitaker and uh, connected other universities and colleges with the music industry?
3: You know, uh, I got to work with, with major, Kauai, Apple, PV. You know, I, I was a consultant for, for these companies because I got them involved in supporting the school program. John Radjic, mentor. Top of the list. Top of the list. <laughs> top of the list, John Radjic.
0: Yeah, tell me more about John.
3: Well, wow. uh, John, what is that to say about John? I mean, John Rajik is one of the, uh, ha- has more insight in, about education than a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. And he cares about education. John got Kauai Miracle Corporation involved in a program that helped fund piano programs for colleges and universities all over the country. I was involved in that program. That's how I met John. I, I, I was introduced to John by a guy who happened to listen to some recordings that I had done. I was using Kawhi synthesizers. He liked it, came to my studio and said, hey, they need somebody to be able, that can talk to teachers. You need to meet John Radgick. They take me to meet John, I tried to show John a resume, John didn't even open the resume. John said to me, do you know anything about the piano business? I said, no. He said, good, you're hired. <laughs> he said, I don't have to undo any, any stuff, you're hired. So, uh, but I said, but I know about education. He said, okay. Well, what, what are you going to do? I said, well, I got a lot of friends teach in these colleges, I think I can help them. A lot of them want to do some of what I'm doing, put in computer and piano labs and, and so they can use them as teaching facilities. And I went to one of my friends and set up a situation where he wanted to buy a lab. John helped fund it, uh, got that one in place, and he asked me if I could do it again. I said, yeah. So I just kept, and I went back to all my my schools. University of Oklahoma, Wayne, Mm. Baylor. I went to all of the people that that I had association with or had gone to school with and helped them establish a a lot of their early technology places. Mm. Yeah,
0: Incredible. Was that sort of your connection with Kauai and and some of those other companies?
3: Yes. Uh, My official... Uh, capacity at Kauai was I was the director of the Kauai Education Division. Mm. And what that meant was anytime somebody from the education community needed a question answered or needed information, they got routed to my phone number. Mm. So I was the person that dealt with all of the issues with how to do purchase orders and how to do how schools could interface mm-hmm. because a lot of the manufacturers at the time were working with with retailers and the bid process was a whole different deal with retailers now now you're working at the manufacturer level level trying to interface with the big education community so I got involved at that level with john and with with john's blessing we were able to do some really uh, landmark kind of program stuff, you
1: know. Well, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word kawaii, it makes me want a Mai Tai or a pina colada.
0: <laughs> or in some cases, a piano or a keyboard. Yeah, that too. <laughs> well, speaking of having fun, can you imagine the opportunity to play in Marvin Gaye's band? Let's hear George tell that
3: story. Whew. That's probably one of the best gigs I ever had. Uh, How did I get that gig? I got that gig, again, probably not because I was the most qualified person to to do the gig. I I had a good attitude. And when I came to town, I would just go to recording sessions. just I wasn't hired. I'd go to recording sessions, um, and they would let me sit in the trumpet section. It just to look at the parts and get scared. That's, 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 that was my, that was my job. So I had to answer the question. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, uh, Bobby Bryant, again, called me up one day and said, uh, you got a passport? I said, yeah, if not, I can get one. He goes, be at this address. I had no idea what it was. Take your horn, be at this address. It was Marvin Gaye's studio on Sunset Boulevard. I show up, the band is in there having a party. They're blasting music to the top, not rehearsing. They're just partying. Some guy lets me in. Marvin, there's some guy here who wants to talk to you. Who sent you? Bobby Brown. You the trumpet player? Yeah. You got a white suit? Nah, I got a light color suit. Okay. uh, all right so we leave for Hawaii, and he started giving me the schedule <laughs> of when the band's leaving. I hadn't even played audition, I thought I was showing up to play an audition, right? He said uh, we, we leave, in two weeks we're going to Hawaii, then we're going to Japan, and we're going to do this, 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 and this. So I, oh, Okay. So I went home and I told Diane, hey I just got a gig with Marvin Gaye and I, we're going to be leaving on such and such and such. So the first thing I had to get used to was my first gig was in Hawaii. I'm on stage. The other trumpet player in the section, one of the trumpet players' his name was Danny Cortez. Is Danny Cortez? Danny, I still talk to all the time. We're playing, and I'm making all these mistakes because I'm in awe. I'm, 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 I can't believe. I mean, these are. I know these songs. I grew up. That's the soundtrack to to my youth. <laughs> you know, and there's Barbie Gates studying. And, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm, make, I'm missing entrances, I'm, I'm just, oh man, it was horrible. And Danny Cortez, Danny Cortez, I love him for it, Danny leans over me and too, we got a rest. Danny says, hey man, if you want to listen to the show, listen to the tape. He you you, you you better get on this, and I, oh okay, I'm supposed to be reading this chart. So it got better after that, you know, we had a couple of rehearsals. And, I was in the band for up until the time they left to go to uh, Amsterdam. That's when I left the band. I had a young daughter, and I just couldn't make that transition. <laughs> I didn't want, you know. And plus, I was still teaching part time, and that was a that was a that was another thing. I, I convinced Long Beach City College because I'm teaching at Long Beach City College while I'm playing with Marvin and Priscilla Rometa, who had such insight. I said, if if you let me go do this. Hire, hire an assistant to do my classes while I'm gone. Every time I got to go out of town, I'll get you more students. All you got to do is tell them I'm playing with Marvin Gaye, and I'll, you'll get some more students. It'll be I'll be advertising for the school. Oh, okay. So she, I convinced her that I was advertising for the school. <laughs> I loved Priscilla, and I was. <laughs> So yeah, that was and 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 uh, Marvin. Marvin, it was a good experience. You no, know, he, he was top notch, mm. top notch performer. It was it was a first class gig.
0: Well, in that part of his career, he was really driving the band, wasn't he? Oh yeah. It, it wasn't just phoning in stuff. He had no 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 no. He was
3: driving the band, and and we did. He had a unique way of recording. I, I'm on like three or four of his albums. He had a very unique way of recording. Um, we'd show up, he had the band on, on call, we'd show up for a, a session and no charts, but it was all music that he'd gone over with the rhythm section. He didn't write anything out, but he'd hum you what he wanted you to play. So he'd walk over, we'd take blank manuscript paper, and, and he'd walk over and he'd hum you your part, and you gotta remember it and jot it down, because he's gotta go around the whole room, hum everybody their part. And then boom, when you hear those orchestrations back, Stuff that he had hummed to the French horn. French horn. This is what I want you to play. This is what I want you to play. Even though he didn't know, you know, formally how to do that, but he had good arrangers. He had good um, uh, musical directors. Yeah. Nolan Shahid was, was the director when I was in the band. Nolan Smith. Nolan Shahid. Uh, yeah, Leslie Drayton before Nolan. Good, good musical directors. Yeah.
0: Any highlights for you w- recording with him?
3: Uh, I'm, I'm glad I got an opportunity to do that, but, but I was doing a lot of recording at that time. Um, uh, you just, I, I, one, one particular highlight, and I don't even remember what the song was, but I remember one night showing up for a session and Marvin's sitting in the control room with the engineer, half the band is there, and he tells everybody, come into the control room. So maybe it's like 10 or 15 of us sitting around the control room. And he takes a microphone, the engineer sets the microphone in front of Marvin. Marvin's sitting in a chair, and we're just kind of standing around. And then he says, I'm getting ready to record this track so everybody be real quiet. I just need people around me because I need somebody to perform for. And he sat there and did a vocal, and we're just standing there real still, because you can't move, you can't cough, you can't do anything. And he recorded his vocal sitting in the control room with 15 people standing around just looking at him in awe. But he would do stuff like that. You know? That's crazy. Yeah. And wow. another another highlight would be in rehearsals. He he um he'd have uh, he he'd had a, a living space over the rehearsal room in the studio. And w- the band would rehearse, the conductor would be doing his thing, and all of a sudden you'd hear this voice come over the intercom, uh, uh Nolan, take take that back to, to letter D or <laughs> whatever. And it would be Marvin listening to the rehearsal from upstairs, <laughs> like who is that? Where is just like he'd come over the come conducting the rehearsal. But he was involved. He was involved. And, and a nice man. He was a nice man. Hmm. Wow! What a great story. You know
0: what? It's so cool to hear this interview because there's a few things that remind me of my early career as well. And one of them is George talking about Milt Hinton. Milt Hinton was a fantastic bass player, a great in-demand studio musician in the '50s and '60s. Actually, even the '70s and '80s. He even had a couple of pop hits as an 80-year-old in the 1980s, which is amazing. But anyway. What George learned from Milt was this connection with other people. What George gleaned from Milt Hinton really was his ability to connect with other musicians. And you know what? Milt Hinton did the exact same thing to a young Dan Del Fiorentino. When I was 14 and 15 years old, I got a hold of Milt and he said, well, if you're going to interview me, you ought to interview Cab Calloway. I'm like, I'd love to interview. How do I do that? Oh, here's his number. What? And he called him ahead of time to say, this young kid's going to call. Don't hang up on him. Give him an interview. Lionel Hampton, Jonah Jones. I mean, the list goes on and on. He did the exact same thing to me. I mean, what an amazing guy he was. So a little shout out to Milt Hinton. And let's hear what uh, George has to say about him.
3: My, my introduction to the judge started with that concert in Wichita. Me offering to carry his bass amp and him inviting me to stay at his house in New York—that's how cool the judge was. I mean, and I don't know what he saw in me. He always said, "Cause I, I'd ask, I said, Judge, Judge, why, why, why did you adopt me, man? What, you know, what, 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 was it?" He says, first of all, you you came up to me and offered to help me. You didn't ask me to help you." <laughs> he said, that's where it starts. And I knew right then, this guy's all right. You didn't ask me for anything, you asked me what you could do to help me. And I did. And and he introduced me to everybody in New York. All I had to do was say, I'm staying at Judge's house. (laughs) 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 You know, and. uh,
0: Now did he have those. uh sunday barbecues oh in the yeah neighborhood when you were
3: there oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah and and in between repairing his bass you know he take did you ever see him repair his bass cuz the bass would get all beat up and he'd take the bass out of the backyard he had all kind of glue and tape and <laughs> <laughs> that bass had been all around the world no but you know his passion was photography mm-hmm. he he took pictures i i have some of his photography i have he gave me a box of slides that go through some of the historical things. I have a signed Billy Holiday poster hanging in my studio by Judge uh that of uh, there's a famous Billy Holiday picture that he took with Billy standing there with a in vodka of tonic or something in the studio in front of a mic. And she's got like a gin and tonic or something or whatever that is she's got but an and the expression is like says it all, that's Billy. Mm. I've got a sign one of those by the all judge. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, had to tip our hat to him for sure. Oh, yeah.
3: I, I, I couldn't have done my dissertation hmm. in full because think about it. I went from, I don't know anybody, to the judge, Count Basic, Carnegie Hall, and that's not that far removed. You know how long it would take to do that? <laughs> it would take forever to do that. And I went from carrying his bass amp to Carnegie Hall.
2: Just like that. <laughs> so at the end of the interview, George definitely wanted to share a story about Dizzy Gillespie.
3: Here's a favor. Here's a good Dizzy story for you, darling. That's what I'm standing backstage. And Sarah Vaughn is out singing, and Dizzy's back warming up to, to, to go out and play. And he's got his horn pointed up, and he's got his mute in the bell. And I'm standing there, and Dizzy walks up to me, And he puts the mute of his bell horn right on my forehead. I'm paralyzed. His Dizzy Gillespie's horn right here. (laughs) And he's playing with Sarah Vaughan, and I can hear him in in the harmon mute. He's playing. And I'm thinking, wow, man, that's special. And he finished and he he got to doodle around a little bit and he said, man, I hope you don't mind. I needed a hard surface to bounce my sound off. Uh, That, that made my day i thought oh man this is this is being real special to me nah man i just needed a hard surface to boss myself
0: well that's it you guys that is the conclusion of this wonderful podcast episode dedicated to our interview with dr george shaw i want to thank alex for all of his prep work in making this possible and his future editing of all of this as well as our new cast member suzanne thank you so much for joining us
1: A pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, until next time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And don't forget to go watch the full interview so you can see George's fabulous beret. Thanks for listening to The
0: Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino.
1: Suzanne Del Fiorentino.
0: And Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.